And if you would turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, you'll find it on page 12 of your pew Bible, Genesis 15. Let me give you just a little update on what we'll be doing this evening and weeks following. As, as many of you know who attend here regularly, I'm at the end of a series. We've completed a series on the life of the fathers, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we've completed the study of those uh, men of faith and their wives, who are often women of faith as well, great women of faith. And uh, tonight, I'm going to read from Genesis 15, but what I'm really going to do is take us back to all those stories and, and look at them as a whole. So if you're visiting us or listening online, this is probably not a typical sermon in a sense for me. Normally, we open a passage of Scripture and I work through a chapter of the Bible uh, sort of piece by piece. I'm not doing that tonight. This is uh, unusual in that sense. I just want to look back with you one last time before we leave these stories at some of the big lessons, the big takeaways, uh, if you will, of our study. And then going into the future, beginning uh, next Sunday in the morning, Lord willing, I'll be starting a series on the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus, but especially with an eye to the question of what is the church? What is the church? What does God say the church is to be? I think COVID, among many things that it accomplished, it, it really rattled a lot of people in their understanding of what is the church? Is it really necessary? Um, many people who, who left during that time have just never gone back, may never go back. Um, many churches went out of business, so to speak, because there was no giving, there was no presence. And I think that reveals that we struggle, especially in our society, to understand what the church is. So I want to look at those epistles, but especially with an eye to that great question, what is the church? What does Christ say that it is? What does it mean? What's it about? And I pray together that we'll be seeing that on Sunday mornings as we go through the pastoral epistles. In the evenings, when I preach in the evenings, I hope to continue doing the Psalms and enjoy doing that uh, with you. But tonight I want to close out our time with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And I do so by choosing uh, Genesis 15. And the reason is because I think the moment here at the end of the chapter uh, is to me in many ways the greatest moment in this story. As Abraham lies there inert, he's not doing anything. God passes between the pieces uh, in front of him. And the meaning of that, you'll recall if you were here for the series, is that God says, is saying by doing that, I will take the curse of the covenant. If you don't uphold it, or if I don't uphold it, let me become like these animals torn apart on either side. And God binds himself eternally to Abraham and to his seed. And if you're in Christ this evening, you are the seed the children of Abraham and God has bound himself to you in promises and he cannot go back. He cannot walk back through the pieces. And so I love this chapter. I've chosen it. Many wonderful chapters in this section. I'll ask you to stand. We'll read the chapter one through twenty one. Hebrews 15, one through twenty one. After these things, the word of Yahweh, the Lord, came to Abram in a vision Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let's ask now his blessing on it. Father, you are not one to ever go back on your word. Your word is entirely trustworthy. We do commit ourselves now to it and pray for your guidance and your direction. Bless and encourage us even as we take this last look into this section of scripture. We pray and ask for your blessing and seek it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So Genesis 15 has several of the really wonderful moments. Um, Of course, I mentioned the passing between the pieces, but it's also you have that wonderful verse. uh, Verse 6, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This was the most important verse in the Bible for the Reformation, the most quoted verse that Martin Luther, Calvin, many of the other reformers would use. And they would point to it and show uh, Roman Catholics that uh, Abraham was righteous by faith before he ever received any sacraments. So he never received any holy meals. He hadn't received circumcision yet or any kind of baptism, but he was justified, declared righteous by faith. And so this was probably the most important single verse at the time of the Reformation. But it's also the place, of course, where God binds himself here uh, to Abraham in such dramatic fashion passing through the pieces. You see the struggle that Abraham's having in the middle of the chapter. Lord, how will I know that these things will be? And so God uh, lowers himself graciously down to the level that Abraham will understand. And he says, Abraham, go get these animals. 
split them apart, because I understand this is how in your culture you take a binding oath, so I'll do it this way for your sake. And he comes down in the, in the torch and passes uh, between the pieces. And of course, all through this history, we see again and again God's faithfulness to Abraham and to us, ultimately, through Christ. Well, we've had a, a long series. We've looked at all these men and women and their stories. And tonight I have the task of trying to boil that down, condense that down, sort of uh, bring us with two or three um, ending thoughts. And I've chosen two tonight, uh, two main things that I hope you will take away with you from our study, our studies together. And the first is this. In these stories, Genesis uh, 18, 12, 12 really till the end, 50, the story of the patriarchs, we have some of the most insightful and practical biographies in Scripture. And I know from talking to you that many of you share that feeling with me. Uh, these men and women remind us of ourselves, their struggles, their hopes, their dreams, their faith. In some ways, they are easier to relate to than some of the other characters we meet in the Old Testament. Uh, we, like them, do not have a central temple. We don't have a priesthood. We don't have a central nation where we sort of belong. We are a sojourning people. We're a pilgrim people. And we feel that all the time, uh, living in, even in this country, that we don't really belong anywhere in this earth. And that's how these uh, men and women felt. They didn't have a nation called Israel, a holy land to call home. They didn't have a central altar or temple where they all went to worship. They didn't have a priesthood, a really organized priesthood that they could go to. They lived very much by faith and prayer in very simple ways uh, that we relate to, I think, very closely. And I hope as we've studied them, you have felt that, you've sensed that, you've connected uh, as I know I have, often feeling that these are people that understand me, that know me, that sound uh, like me. Now, none of us are exactly like any one of these characters, but tonight, let me just remind you a little bit of who we've looked at and, and how God used them and their story. And maybe it'll just uh, stir up in you again, uh, in a fresh way, the ways your life might, might connect to theirs. And the first character we looked at, of course, is... Abraham And Abraham is very much presented to us in Scripture as the pioneer, isn't he? He comes from an unbelieving family. He's actually, the Bible says he was worshiping the sun, star, stars, and moon when God called him to faith. And he's really the only one, as far as we can tell, taken out of his family and brought into relationship with God. And everything for Abraham is brand new, right? He, he's living at home. He's living with his clan. And God says, leave everything behind, follow me, go to a land that you're not familiar with, and live there your entire life as a refugee in the hope that one day, hundreds of years from now, I will give it to you and your children. And so Abraham is very much a pioneer in faith. That's why we call him the father of faith. And we sing, I have our kids sing songs about Father Abraham uh, because of his faith. He sort of pioneers faith. And God, it's God's grace to him, of course, and is the first and sort of only one in his family. And so there's a lot, a lot to learn from Abraham's life. The great crisis of Abraham's life is when he, of course, is commanded to take his only son, Isaac. He's waited all these years, about 25 years to have this son of promise. And God says, take this son and go to a mountain. You know, the mountain, you know, it as Calvary. They knew it as something else. 
And God says, go to Calvary and offer up to me your one and only son. And this is sort of the high point of Abraham's faith. He's a mature believer at this point. And he goes to do it. And God stops him. And there, uh, not far from where Jesus was crucified, if not on the right very spot, a lamb, a ram is provided. And Abraham sacrifices that animal in the place of his son, God's one and only son, instead of Abraham's one and only son. Why? Because God passed through the pieces that night. Abraham didn't. Abraham was in a trance. He laid back and watched as God took upon himself the responsibility of both sides of the covenant marriage. And so God himself bears the curse of the covenant that you and I deserve through his son. He takes it upon himself. And Abraham, that's sort of the high point of Abraham's life. So he's very much the pioneer. The same can be said for Sarah. Sarah is a remarkable character, Abraham's wife, a woman who we're told in the New Testament to model ourselves after, to think about, to admire. And you remember that the scriptures tell us that Sarah's faith played a critical role in the birth of Isaac. You know, I don't know, maybe this is because I'm a man, but until I did this study, this had never really come home to me. I always thought of Isaac's birth as sort of the outflow, the outcome of Abraham's faith. And that's certainly true, but it's only half the story. Because Hebrews tells us that the birth of Isaac was directly connected to Sarah's faith. Here's what the scriptures say in Hebrews 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since or because she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him faithful who had promised. And so she is presented to us as well as a woman of great faith, a hero of the faith. Her name here mentioned in Hebrews 11, along with many, mostly men, but not all men, people of great faith. Well, these two men and women of great faith they have their struggles, they have their sins, but they do, uh, by God's grace, receive a son. His name is Isaac. And Isaac, his life is very different than his father's, isn't it? Abraham is called out of darkness. He's 75 years old. He's been worshiping idols his whole life. He's the only person in his family who's saved. Some of you have that experience. That's your story. But Isaac's story is probably a little bit more like my story. Isaac is raised by these two really wonderful believing people. He's what we call in our church a covenant child. He's grown up in worship. He's grown up knowing who God is. And in fact, at a very early age, Isaac has an immense amount of faith, a really incredible faith, because he's a teenager when he goes up on the altar voluntarily to be slain as a sacrifice at the command of God. It's evident in that text. He doesn't fight his father at all. He offers himself up freely. And so even at a young age, this was a man of remarkable faith. And really the rest of his story is very peaceful. We'll get to Jacob in a moment. Jacob's uh, kind of goes back into the chaos and the struggle, but Isaac's life is one of peace. It's one of knowing God probably from the very first minute of his life to the very last minute of his life and always knowing God and always loving God. And, and that's the story for many of us. I know it is for me. We grew up with believing parents. God blessed us. We can't remember a time when we didn't believe in God. And that's Isaac's story. 
But Isaac, of course, needs a wife. And mom and dad are living among the Canaanites. And you'll remember how God wonderfully provides a strikingly beautiful and faithful woman for Isaac named Rebekah. Rebekah is that woman who decides to leave her home, leave everything she's ever known behind in less than 24 hours and go with Abraham's servant and return and marry Isaac, a man she's never met. And the text of scripture is very clear why Rebecca did this, right? Do you remember? Rebecca did this because she believed the Lord was in it. it. It wasn't, you know, sense and sensibility. It wasn't some great romance where she just had happy thoughts. She did it as an act of religious faith. She could see how things were coming about. And she agreed with the servant of Abraham that this was divine, that God was calling her and so she did something bold and faithful that most of us, I would say, would have a really hard time even imagining doing to, to leave your family, to leave your brothers, your, your sisters, your parents and, and, and move to the part of the country where you may never, ever see them again in your life to marry a man you have never seen. That's extraordinary faith. And the scriptures say that she did it in faith. Rebecca is then later in her life given a vision from the Lord, given revelation, which tells us also of the tremendous faith that she had, her love for the Lord. And in this vision or this revelation, the Lord reveals to her that she will have twins and that quite unexpectedly, the older twin will not be the heir of God's grace, but the younger twin. And Rebecca believes that vision and she believes it all her life. Now, Rebecca and Isaac struggle with that vision. Uh, Isaac can't bring himself to believe it. He always favors Esau, the older twin, and mom always favors Jacob, the younger twin. But they were people of great faith, and we are thankful for their story. And we see in their struggles our own struggles in our own hearts. And that leads us to that younger twin, to Jacob. So these, this couple who've met in this wonderful way, they have this amazing wedding that's been planned by God where Rebecca has come sight unseen. They have a real struggle because they have twin boys, Esau and Jacob, and the boys are literally born wrestling. Uh, Jacob's name means something like heel grabber or wrestler, someone who grapples, someone who trips you up by the heel as you're walking away. That's the picture in Hebrew. And Jacob from from day one is a wrestler, isn't he? Not just with other people. That's certainly true. But more importantly, with God, he's always wrestling with God. The things that seem to be sort of almost easy for Isaac to trust God and follow God. Jacob is a child. And some of us have been this, too, who grew up in a Christian home, grew up around the faith, but really struggles to believe in himself and to follow it. In fact, the first time God meets with Jacob, Jacob's on the run. He's just fooled his dad into blessing him. He knows he's got to get out of town so his older brother doesn't kill him. And he goes to a place called Bethel. Beth means home. El means God's the house of God. He lays his head down. He sleeps on a rock and he has a vision of a stairway temple, a ziggurat temple. A member that we talked about and, and God speaks to him and makes promises to him. And you'll remember Jacob's answer. Do you remember Jacob's answer to God? It's, it's kind of sad, funny, and, and all at the same time. Jacob basically says to God, okay, if you do all those things for me, then you'll be my God. And that's Jacob. He's someone who grew up 
in a wonderful believing home. He grew, you know, if I could put it that way, he grew up in church. He grew up around the truth, but he's a struggler. He's got to, some of us, if you've had children, you, you might have a child. They've got to learn everything the hard way. And sometimes you get frustrated with Jacob's that child. He has to learn everything the hard way. And yet God is with him and, and he wrestles. He wrestles everywhere he goes. He goes to his uncle Laban and Laban cheats him. He wrestles in his marriage. He has, ends up with two wives who are sisters. He didn't want that. He didn't plan that. Leah and Rachel. And it's a constant battle in his life. And he comes back. He wrestles with his twin. He thinks he loses his son Joseph for a while. His life is one of wrestling. And at the high point of his struggle, just as Abraham's high point was the offering up of his son Isaac, what's the high point of Jacob's life? Well, it's when he wrestles with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, you'll remember that he wrestles at night with what's called the angel of the covenant, this angelic being who speaks as God, who says, thus says the Lord. And it's, a, it's probably almost certainly Christ uh, in some manifestation in Jacob's life. And it's it's an amazing moment because no one in the Bible gets this close to really an angel or to God himself as Jacob does. So even though Jacob, everything's difficult for Jacob. If you relate to that at all, if you find that your Christian life is is always hard, there's lots of trials. There's another side to Jacob, though, and that is that his blessings also tend to be really big. His struggles, his trials are huge, but so are his blessings. And so Jacob is the first of the men of faith to see the blessing of God come not down on just one of his sons, but all of his sons. Now, we kind of easily pass over that, I think, when we read these stories. But that was an incredible moment. Abraham all had, to, had to see two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and see God's grace come to one in a way it didn't come to the other. And then, ja and then Jacob uh, sees that in his own life, right? Esau, his older brother, doesn't follow God, and he does. And, and with Jacob, that trend changes, and suddenly the people of God go from sort of one to one to one to one to 12, as all 12 of Jacob's sons are included in the promises of God. So Jacob's life, I think, is the hardest by far of all three. And yet the blessings, what God does through him, is really extreme and really wonderful. And he gets to see the greatness, the greatness of what God, God does. And that's why we call these people, these people that came from Abraham, we call them Israel, right? Israelites. And Israel, you'll remember, is Jacob's other name. They're actually called, they're named after Jacob. And that tells you something of his importance in the story of God's grace. All of this leads us to one final great father who takes up more pages than any other that we often sometimes, I think, skip over for one reason or another, but that's Joseph. And Joseph is really um, the blessed one. His name, literally in Hebrew, means to add to, to increase. And that really is the story of Joseph as we saw it. He is uniquely gifted with wisdom, intelligence, kindness, grace, strength, everything. He, in some sense, he is the father of faith we've been looking for from the beginning. He goes through um, some of the same trials that his father 
grandfather and great-grandfather went through. He, he's taken as a slave to Egypt. He's thrown in prison. His trials are really significant. They're huge, as we saw in our study of his life. But his way of dealing with his trials is far better, actually, than that of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He really is sort of the crescendo, the high point of what God's been doing. And, and also, and for that reason, I'm sure, the clearest picture of Jesus that we get in this section of Scripture. Joseph, remember, is taken by his brothers and sold into the hands of sinful men. But only because they do that, because they betray him and turn him over to sinful men, it's only because they do that that they are ultimately saved. So as we saw last time, Joseph, at the end of his life, can say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. If you have opportunity later tonight, go back in your bulletin and read the Westminster Confession of Faith section on Providence that we read responsively earlier. It's very much inspired by that moment in Joseph's life that even the worst things we do in life, even the very worst acts of mankind are ultimately put under the sovereignty of God in such a way that they end up being for the good of his people. You notice in what we read, he works all things out for good for his church. And so the absolute worst thing that has ever happened on this planet, the absolute most heinous crime ever committed in our world, the crucifixion of Jesus, who was betrayed by his brothers, just as Joseph was, ends up opening the storehouses of God's grace to the whole world. So much so that the Jews who crucified Jesus in that act of leading to his crucifixion actually provided salvation for themselves and for us, in a sense, by making the way possible. How? How is that possible? Because God took what they did and meant for evil, and they did mean it for evil. Pontius Pilate meant it for evil. The Jews meant it for evil. The Romans meant it for evil. But God was able to take it because of his incredible power and bring it about the greatest possible good. And so Joseph is our clearest picture of Christ. Now, again, none of these stories are exactly my life or your life. Avoid the temptation. Maybe you felt this through our study of latching on to just one of these people and saying, that's me. And then reading your whole story, your whole life that way. There's elements here in each of our lives. And yet, aren't they relatable? They, they're afraid about money. They're afraid about food. They're afraid when they can't have kids. They're afraid that they're going to be killed by enemies. They're afraid that they're going to be misunderstood. They struggle with all the fear, all the anger, and all the lust that you and I struggle with. And God is faithful to them in the midst of it. But what wonderful stories. In the words of 1 Corinthians, they are examples for us, Paul says, that we are to learn from and grow from. And they're very, very helpful. So that's the first thing I hope that you take away from this study is a an understanding of those stories as I've just overviewed them and a sense in which they relate to you and you can connect to them. But the second thing I want you to take away and and this is the more important of the two is the amazing love and faithfulness of God to his covenant and to his people throughout all of this again and again in these passages we've seen God's power is on display his ability to take sinful people, people who are really genuinely messed up people, 
And if you, if you know the stories, you remember our, the preaching through, they are really broken people, we would say today. And yet his ability to take those people and do great things in and through them. And at the same time, to protect them, to feed them, to care for them, to keep his promises to them. His power is on display. Many of you know I'm teaching a Sunday school class this year to our high schoolers on systematic theology. It's an overview of the theology of the Bible. And right now we're looking at the doctrine of God. And my students can tell you, hopefully, that today we talked about the names of God and how the names of God reveal his power, his majesty, his, his character. And the term most often used, the name for God most often associated with this portion of scripture is the term El Shaddai. El Shaddai, God all-powerful, all-powerful. Because we see in these stories so clearly, don't we? The power of God to protect and provide for his people, to give life to people who are way too old to have children. He just reverses that and gives life. He has all power. He also has sovereignty, doesn't he? And freedom in these stories. This isn't just a matter of Calvinism or being reformed or something that simple. It's something much deeper and bigger than all that. What we see in these stories is God's sovereignty in that he comes and makes the difference in people's lives. Uh, we see it in Abraham's life, right? All of his brothers, his parents are idolaters and they're left in idolatry. But God comes and grabs Abraham and pulls him up by the ear almost and takes him to himself and saves him. God is free and sovereign in his love. His love is not a reaction that he has because we loved him first. Rather, we love him because he loved us first. And we see that all through the text. Nowhere is it more clear, though, than in the twins. Isaac's twins, Esau and Jacob. Paul will speak about this repeatedly in Romans and elsewhere in the New Testament but they show us once again the freedom of God. Here are two boys. They're twins born at the same moment. And yet God says, before they were born, I set my love on Jacob and I rejected Esau. Romans chapter 9. And so we see the freedom of God that these weren't men or women who pulled themselves up by their own energy or their own strength or made great decisions or made decisions for God. But rather men and women who were grabbed by God's love by his sovereign love and brought into relationship with him so that, and here's the key, and this is what it's all about. So that all the glory goes to God. So there is no glory. Jacob cannot say, well, you know, I, God did reach out to me, but you know, I, I had the wisdom to reach back. Unlike my brother. No. If you remember those stories, Jacob's a little scoundrel. He's a little cheat. Uh, Esau is the one everyone would have preferred. Everyone in their culture believed that you choose the older twin. And, and he was rugged. He was a man's man. He was a hunter. And yet what does God say? He says, that's not how my grace works. My grace does not find the lovely, lovely as Luther once said. Rather, God's love makes the unlovely lovely. It transforms. And we've seen that again and again. So we see a power. We see the freedom of God's power and his sovereign plan playing out in everything that happens. We see his sovereignty, too, 
in providence. I've spoken about that a little, and we could just go, that could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but think about how many things happened in the lives of these men where God made things just right to bring about what he wanted to do in their lives. When Jacob gets into trouble, for example, remember, he goes to see Uncle Laban. I called him that through the whole sermon series, and some of you I know like that way of referring to him as Uncle Laban, and that's a good name for him. He's a scoundrel. But we talked about how God's wisdom, seeing God's wisdom in that, because Jacob is a scoundrel. And when he goes to Laban, he sees in Laban an adult version of who he's becoming if God does not work in his life. Laban cheats Jacob right after Jacob cheated his father. And so even the providence of that, can you see how God was arranging that? God was saying, I know, Jacob, exactly where you need to go to learn the lessons I have for you. And of course, we see it most clearly in Joseph's life where he goes down to Egypt as a slave. And all of it is under God's providence, his sovereign control, not just over, over salvation, but over everything that happens in our world as part of his plan. That's hard to believe. It's hard to accept, especially when something is going terrible in your life. But these stories make it abundantly clear that the best things that happen to us and the worst things that happen to us are designed by God. Now, one of those is very easy to believe. All of us have no problem believing tonight that the best things that ever happened to us, God authored. So when we think about the person we married, we go, oh, thank you, Lord. You did that, right? That's one of the best things that's happened to me, and I'm so grateful. Very hard, very hard when you've just gotten that diagnosis from your doctor to say, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me, and God meant it for good. Easy to say. We say it all the time around here. Really hard to believe and to mean it. And if you haven't had that struggle yet, you will. We'll be here for you uh, as a church when it happens. There's going to come a time in your life, if it hasn't already, where that is the most brutally difficult thing you can ever imagine going through. Believing and trusting that that thing God has given you is the best thing. But that's the God who's revealed to us, isn't it, in these stories. Joseph was thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. In that moment, he didn't know it. But God was loving him. It was the best thing that could have happened to him. It changed his life, and he saved thousands, tens of thousands of people because that happened to him. And then, of course, above all, as we talk about God's love and all of this, we see Jesus. And we've seen Jesus, I hope I've, I've done well throughout this series in, in taking you back again and again to the Lord Jesus. He is in the Old Testament. He's in, on every page of the Old Testament. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead, he walked for hours with his disciples. They didn't recognize him. And, it, and the Bible says he opened to them the scriptures, the Old Testament, and revealed to them all the things concerning himself. These stories are about Jesus. He's in them. He's the ram on Mount Calvary that's offered up instead of Isaac. He's our Joseph. He's our elder brother. That's why we call him our elder brother who has opened the storehouses of God's grace to us, who, who we rejected, 
who we don't love and appreciate as we should, who we sometimes are tempted, much like the Ten Brothers, we think maybe he's going to get even with us, maybe he hates us, and yet again and again he loves us and receives us. And so Jesus has shown to us again and again. We meet a character named Melchizedek, remember that? Abraham has won a great battle. He's coming back to his home in sort of southern Israel, and he's passing through the city of Salem. You know it as Jerusalem, because people of that era like to add the Ru to the name of a city. So you know it as Jerusalem, but at the time, the name of the city was Salem, or peace. And here in this little city, there is a community of believers, probably descendants of Shem, Noah's son. And they're worshiping the Lord, and there's a priest there who is also a king. He's a king and a priest ruling in Jerusalem. We don't know who his parents were. As Pastor Trescar told us this morning, we know almost nothing about him. But we, knew, we do know that Abraham saw him as a true man of God and paid tithes to him, recognizing, in a sense, his superiority over him in his life. And there we see Jesus. For as the author of Hebrews tells us and the scriptures tell us, Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. When the early Christians said to themselves, how can Jesus be a priest and the sacrifice? If you're saying that's what happened to the cross, how can this be? The New Testament author said, don't you understand? Even before Israel existed, there was a priestly king line in Jerusalem. And that priestly king line was then given to David. That's why David initially says he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then it's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God always knew it would happen. Thousands of years before Jesus was born, God was already writing the story and putting the characters in it so that we would come to find his son. So as you step away from these great stories... Step away with a sense that you've been understood, that your life, my life, our struggles, we've heard about them here. But more importantly, step away with a sense that God is true to his promises, a God of grace. I want to leave you tonight with one practical application as we close. And, and to be fair, especially if you're visiting with us, we've looked at a dozen different applications, probably multiple dozen. I've just picked one. It's the one I felt led by the Lord to. There are so many things that I could say to you about all of this and things I could encourage you to, but I've chosen just this one. Pray for patience. Pray for patience. One of the great messages of these stories is that the Lord will surely, surely keep his promises. He will do for you and for me, what he has sworn to do. But his timetable is not ours. Abraham never sees what God is going to do for him. Isaac never sees what God was going to do for him. God was telling Abraham, imagine this, God is saying to a man who has no children, you're going to have as many children as sand on the seashore, stars in the sky. He, he could have tailed, maybe he did. Can you imagine if God came to Abraham and said, I want you to know, Abraham, there's going to be this church in New Jersey full of people, and you know our church is, from all over the world who consider themselves your children. Faces you've never seen, races you don't even know existed at this time. 
And his mind would have just been absolutely blown. I don't know if God allowed him to see any of that or not. But in his life, he never saw any of that except by faith, which is just another word for patience. If you don't feel right now that God's promises are true, you look at a world that you feel like is declining. You look at your own body, maybe your own life, your own relationships, and you see decline, you see failure, you struggle. And here you've got these promises. God is saying to you, I am going to give you the new heavens and new earth. I'm going to dwell with you forever. I'm going to raise you from the dead. I'll tell you, every, every day I struggle with different health problems. That promise, I'm going to raise you from the dead and give you an immortal, perfect body, seems less and less real and harder to accept. I actually think it's easier to accept. Maybe I'm wrong. Correct me after the service. I think our kids, maybe that's easier to believe. And I think the older you get, it, it, you want it more. But it's also hard to imagine, isn't it? Because all we see here is death, decay, sorrow, struggle. Just as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph never saw in their life the promises. So what do we need? Patience. God is not on our schedule. He is doing something great. It's happening, though, over hundreds. It's happening over thousands of years. And you're living right now, right in the middle of it. But it's unfolding as he wants to unfold it. And so what we need, what they needed, and what God granted them was patience. To patiently hope in these promises. God will do for you everything that he has promised. And in fact, he's going to do more for you. Just as Abraham could not imagine, his mind was not capable of understanding what God was going to do for him, of understanding where we would be tonight talking about him. His mind could not have comprehended that. So your mind tonight cannot comprehend the things that Christ will do for you in the world to come. So brothers and sisters, wait patiently on him. Let's pray. Father, we look for a city whose founder and whose maker is the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not receive this world as our final home. We refuse to receive this body as our final body. We look to a future that to the world is as improbable as the promises made to Abraham and yet, just as you fulfilled those promises in ways unimaginable, so we look with patience and faith to you. Give to your people that hope, that patience, that faith, that they might follow you even in dark days. And we pray and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.